0: From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. The Oscars are tomorrow, and in the spirit of Hollywood excess, we turn our gaze upon one well-worn path of many L.A. stars, the Celebrity Restaurant. Almost a century before Robert De Niro bankrolled Nobu, Ryan Gosling backed Tajine, and Lisa Vanderpump pumped up Pump, stars were opening restaurants. But two of the first were Thelma Todd, who ran the Sidewalk Cafe, just off the Pacific Coast Highway, and filmmaker Preston Sturges, who opened the Players Club on the Sunset Strip. Like the many outposts of Planet Hollywood, these restaurants were big hits, until they weren't. Because one thing that hasn't changed, this is a hard business to be in. This Oscar weekend, we're taking a little trip back in time with journalist and historian Hadley Mears to explore a couple of early Hollywood celeb restaurants. Hi, Hadley. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're happy to have you. Let's start with the
1: Sidewalk Cafe. Who was Thelma Todd? So Thelma Todd was a really wonderful comedian in an early slapstick comedy. She was called the ice cream blonde or hot toddy. And she was in a very successful screen duo with uh, the legendary comedian Zazu Pitts. And she also did films with Buster Keaton, the Marx Brothers, Joey Brown. And she was kind of this beloved starlet on the Hollywood scene known for her generosity and her high spirits and her mean lamb chops, which she broiled over charcoal. When and why
0: did she decide to open a restaurant
1: you know, it's really a fascinating story. Uh, Thelma had always kind of seen herself as more than just an actress. And she has this great quote where she talks about how she sees all these other Hollywood starlets who had their place in the sun and then get a little bit older because of misogyny. They lose their careers and they're lost and bewildered. And she said, you know, I decided I was not going to be one of these people. I wasn't going to mind if I gained weight or I got wrinkles because I could use my brain And as long as I could use my head, it wouldn't matter how I looked. So she and her uh, much older married lover, a director and quite a shady character named Roland West, pooled their resources and decided, hey, Thelma loves to cook. Let's open a restaurant together and use Thelma's fame as a way to entice people into the restaurant. And therefore Thelma was able to kind of start a second act of her life that wasn't dependent on Hollywood it girl status of the moment. Wow, I really love
0: that she had the foresight and the confidence to do that. So let's talk about the location. It was in a pretty exclusive neighborhood just off PCH.
1: Why did she choose this spot? Yeah, she chose this very exclusive spot on the PCH, one, because she was really into the fact that she missed great seafood dinners like she had had in New England. So what perfect place to have a seafood restaurant than right on the shore. Uh, But she also chose it quite practically, honestly, because Her lover and business partner, Roland West, already had a house in the neighborhood. And so they were able to purchase this really beautiful property that is still there today right on the PCH. And they kind of poured their heart and soul into creating a restaurant that they hoped would kind of bring back a more fine dining approach To eating. It had a beautiful restaurant, it had a very pricey menu, and it had a private club called Joya's Room, where there was a lot of fancy food, a lot of fancy drinks, and probably some light gambling as well. Who
0: ended up coming? Who were who was the clientele and how successful was it?
1: You know, it was very successful. A lot of Hollywood folks would come, and a big part of the reason it was so popular is because Thelma worked tirelessly to make herself the face of the restaurant. She essentially made herself a brand. She would be working at the counters. She gave countless interviews to newspapers about new recipes she was uncovering and the kind of experience she hoped guests would have. And so she really put her face forward. And because she was so beloved and such a smart cookie, people wanted to come and check out what Thelma was up to. So even the West fronted the money Thelma Todd is the person who made the Sidewalk Cafe such a success.
0: Thelma told the gossip columnist Luella Parsons about her inspiration to the cafe. Um, Would you read that
1: quote for us? Oh, absolutely. I love it. Let's see, where is it? I've heard so much about the choice foods of these days preceding Prohibition, when eating was still a fine art. Always I read with great interest about the bon vivants of the gay 90s when people dined with pomp and ceremony before they became addicted to grabbing a sandwich, a slab of pie, and calling it a meal.
0: <laughs> the more things <laughs> change, the more they stay the same, right? Give us a couple of menu items that she had.
1: Absolutely. you know. Seafood was really the main focus of the menu. So you see crab, lobster, shrimps, oysters. There's a lot of things with kind of heavy sauces like Allison sauce that we might not want uh, so much today. Of course, a lot of alcohol. Thelma was quite known for her signature drink, Three Fingers of Rye. So it all
0: ended abruptly, December 15th, 1935. Tell us what Mm -hmm. happened.
1: So on December 15th, 1935, Thelma was having a party thrown in her honor by the director Stanley Lupino and his 17-year-old daughter, Ida Lupino, who of course became a very famous movie star, a pioneering female director, and quite a a dramatist Uh, You know, Thelma was a hard partier. She was vivacious, she was fun, and she was young. She was only 29 years old. And Roland West, her boyfriend, she and Roland actually lived above the restaurant in adjoining apartments. And so he told her as she was leaving for this party that was being thrown for her at the Café Trocadero on the Sunset Strip, West said, you know... I want you to be home by 2 a.m. because he was worried that she was drinking too much. And she laughed and she said, oh, I'll be home by 2.05, don't worry. So she went to this party being thrown in her honor. It said that that night she was in high spirits for most of the night. And she you know, made a bet with a bunch of Hollywood execs. Hey, I bet you, you won't come to my restaurant tomorrow. So she was always playing up the business, always trying to draw customers in. Uh, Ida Lupino says towards the end of the night, I believe she was rather drunk and got rather melancholy and waved everyone goodbye with a flourish, though who knows if that's true. Ida said a lot of things. And she went home in a chauffeured car around 3 a.m., which was, of course, much later than she had told Roland West she would be home. The next night, nobody had seen Thelma. Those studio execs that she had bet wouldn't come in to Thelma Todd's. uh, came in, and they said, where's the hostess? Where's Thelma? And uh, West said, oh, I don't know. I guess she's with her mother. And then the next morning, her body was found in a car in a private garage that West owned right up the road from the restaurant. And she was still in her shimmering blue evening dress that she had worn the evening of the party, and she was slumped over the front of the car under the over the steering wheel, and she had tragically been dead. And there was a little bit of blood dried on her mouth and on her nose. What were some of the theories floating around about her death? Oh, there were so many theories. There were a lot of theories that her ex-husband, Pat DeChico, who was kind of a shady underworld character who later became famous for being Uh, the very abusive first husband of Gloria Vanderbilt, that he had had something to do with it because he had been at the party at the Café Trocadero the night before and it was said that they had had a fight. There were rumors that the mob had gotten involved and offed Thelma because she refused for them to gamble in the private uh, area, Joya's room in the restaurant Uh, There were rumors that perhaps Roland West had had something to do with it, that maybe he was furious with her that she had come home late and intoxicated. And these rumors swirled around and were made a lot worse by the fact that there was a absolutely power mad grand jury foreman in Los Angeles who had control of this case, who really made this into a spectacle. And it it was just a absolute mess and, you know, destroyed her reputation as this really wonderful actress, really wonderful person, and really wonderful innovator and restaurateur.
0: What is the most likely scenario about Thelma Todd's death?
1: Well, you know, sadly, you know, like it is with life, usually the simplest and most depressing answer is the truth. Um... What we think probably happened was she got home late, she was intoxicated, and she didn't want Roland West, her boyfriend, to be angry with her for coming in late and drunk. So she probably climbed the staircase behind the restaurant up to this private garage that was owned by her boyfriend, Roland West. And she probably thought, okay, I'm just gonna sleep in the car and not bother Roland. And it was a very chilly night. She was only wearing, you know, this kind of very beautiful, but not that warm evening gown. And she probably turned on the car to try and get warm and then was killed by carbon monoxide fumes and was too intoxicated to realize what had happened.
0: How tragic. I know. It's such a sad story. Let's shift gears now to
1: Preston Sturgis. For yes.
0: For anyone who might not know, who was he?
1: Preston Sturgis was a fascinating man. He was the director of classic movies like Sullivan's Travels and The Palm Beach Story and The Lady Eve. He was a wonderful director, writer, bon vivant, man of the people who also happened to be from a very wealthy family. And in the 1940s, he was really on top of the world directing this string of really innovative Really socially conscious and really funny and poignant movies. So he seemed to center
0: his businesses um, in West Hollywood on the Strip. Um, tell us about his ventures.
1: Well, he first opened a place called Snyder's Cafe on the Strip in uh, 1937, and then in 1940. He purchased a rambling old private residence that was right underneath the legendary Chateau Vermont and right across the street from the Garden of Allah, which was so really in the heart of kind of the very tip of the beginning of the Sunset Strip. And it became his baby and he named it The Players. And it was a restaurant and a nightclub. And he just tirelessly poured into every detail. He really had a director's eye. It was constantly evolving. Preston was so madcap, so probably manic, depressive, we would say today, had had a real maniacal energy about him. So at different points at the players, there was a drive-through burger stand. There was a revolving stage where his famous friends would do one-act plays that he himself had written. And there was also a notorious alleged secret tunnel that would lead VIPs from the players all the way up to further the night at the Chateau Marmont.
0: Although the players was super popular and gossip colonists um, wrote about it plenty, um, it was always in the hole financially, which, um, as we understand now, is not unusual for a restaurant. <laughs> what ended up happening to the property at 8225 Sunset Boulevard?
1: Well, it kind of continued on its infamous way. It was the Imperial Gardens. It became the Roxbury, Miyagi's. And since 2012, it has been the infamous uh, Mexican chain restaurant, the Pink Taco. And I understand that during those
0: renovations, the work crews discovered the revolving stage, the dance floor, and the tunnels.
1: Yes, uh, allegedly they did discover all of those things. I would love to go in that tunnel and see what you could find. Well, thank you so much, Healthy. This was so much fun. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, too, Evan.
0: Just in time for the Academy Awards, that was journalist and historian Hadley Mears discussing two of L.A.'s earliest celebrity restaurants. We have lots of pictures and historical details about both Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe and Preston Sturgeon's Players Club on our website. Check it out at kcrw.com goodfood. Coming up, why not add a little salt and pepper to that pie crust? We explore the world of savory pies next.
2: Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars.
0: Welcome back to Good Food. When we talk about pie, which, let's face it, we do a lot these days, my mind goes to apple with the double crust. Or my summertime love, Pierre boysenberry with a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Sometimes we need a nudge to remind us that some of the most satisfying pies aren't sweet at all. Tejal Rao, critic at large for the New York Times, is here to remind us of the virtues of savory pie. Hi. Hi, Evan. Did you grow up eating pie? Does your family have a pie tradition? We,
3: yeah, we, you know... My parents made a lot of sort of what I would call like British style pies, you know, meat and vegetable pies. Sometimes my mom would make some sort of a samosa pie, so a puff pastry, but with samosa filling, lamb and peas and potato inside. Yeah. And I love sweet pies. Um, I love all pies, but I think savory pies are magical.
0: A few years ago, you started a newsletter at the New York Times called The Veggie, where you focused on plant-based cooking. And I think it's only natural as you catalog the myriad ways to put vegetables on the table. It's inevitable that you end up encasing them in pastry. Talk through some of the versions that you wrote about. Um, Maybe let's start with um, the Swiss chard slab pie from Kristen Donnelly's cookbook, Modern Potluck. So she she adapted that recipe
3: from Justin Chapel, and it is especially wonderful because it's not a, it's not a sort of traditional nine-inch round pie. It is a buttery, flaky, greens-filled pie that is the size of an entire sheet pan. You know, it is a party pie. To make that filling, you sweat onion and garlic, and you also cook the charred stems. So I love that you use the the stems as well as the leaves. Um. So you add the stems, then you add the leaves, some wine, and it's not exactly creamed chard, but you do add some sour cream to it. So it's quite sumptuous, but you're still using the whole vegetable. It's so simple and so good.
0: The dough on that one looks incredible. Is it easy to handle?
3: There's a lot of fat in it. So it's a, you know, it's a pretty buttery dough. Um, but I think if you keep it cold and, you know, lightly floured, yeah, it's pretty easy to handle.
0: And then, of course, there is a Yotam Odalengi pie stuffed with butternut squash. Oh, this is a great... This is also kind of a, a party pie, that,
3: and you don't need a pie tin to make this one necessarily. It's um, filled with butternut squash that's seasoned with maple syrup, cinnamon. There's leeks and scallions and a little bit of uh, Swiss chard and feta cheese. And you can use um, frozen puff pastry for this one and kind of just encase everything. It's delicious. Are there any tricks we need to know
0: about using that puff pastry?
3: I mean, frozen puff pastry is pretty easy to work with if you give it a little bit of time to come to room temperature, but not so much time that it starts to get sticky. And again, lightly flour it so that it's easy to handle without, without sticking to anything. And then using extra, any of the trimmings to cut fun shapes or give to a kid to roll out and cut fun shapes with, I think that's a crucial step.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. You you also um, name check an escarole pie that you love. Oh yeah, I
3: was cooking from Claudia Fleming's new cookbook, Delectable, and there's a beautiful recipe for an escarole pie in there. The greens are cooked with uh, red chili flakes and anchovies, um, black and green olives. It's very intense and savory. And I think it was just as good warm as it was cold, and it was especially good at room temperature. And I'm real. I'm realizing I think I have a type when it comes to pies, and it's a pie that is extravagantly filled with greens.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> As you know, our pie contest is coming up, and every year we have a wild card category where we take inspiration from our host, um, the Fowler Museum at UCLA this time, and we turn it into a pie category. So this year we're calling it Lineage Pie. It's inspired by an exhibition at the Fowler by Amir H. Fala called The Fallacy of Borders, and we're really encouraging people to consider their own heritage when entering this category and aim for kind of edible storytelling in a pie tin. I, I know that you moved around a lot as a young person, and I'm curious if you were to conceive of a lineage pie inspired by the fallacy of borders, what would yours be?
3: Mm, okay, Evan, I want to tell you about a pie that I've only made in my mind. Ooh, I'd love that. <laughs> but that I think would work really well for this and that would be good in real life. Um okay, so I'd start by making kukupaka, paka, which is a chicken curry I grew up eating in Kenya. My my grandmother, who lives in Nairobi, makes a really delicious version of this. It's um cukupaka is a curry that is made all over East Africa now with so many variations, but it has its roots in Mombasa on the Indian Ocean, which was a working port, a hub for immigrants from other parts of Africa, from the Middle East, from India. Um, At one point, my family arrived through there. Um, It's a very comforting and delicious curry. And it's also this great representation of um, Kenyan coastal cuisine. So we'd start by grilling chicken over charcoal and then building out a curry paste with onions, tomatoes, uh, ginger, garlic, green chilies, Coriander and cumin seeds, and then fresh coconut milk. and then um, we'd simmer the charcoal grilled chicken in that. This isn't super traditional, but I would probably add um like sweet corn and little halved creamy potatoes or maybe another vegetable depending on what's around. Um, and some cilantro. and then when it was reduced so it's pretty luxurious and thick, I'd seal it under a very buttery pastry, like a short crust dough and bake it until it was very deep brown and then I'd serve that with um, pickled sliced onion and chilies.
0: If you ever take that out of your head and make it actual I I must taste it. (laughs) Yes I'll give you a call. (laughs) I love that. I love that so much. Thank you Tejal. Thank you Evan. Thanks so much. Tajul Rao is a critic at large at the New York Times, and she's a judge at this year's pie contest. Do you have a savory pie recipe that you think will impress Tajul? KCRW's Good Food Pie Contest is Sunday, April 30th, at UCLA's Royce Quad. Enter your pie at kcrw.com/pie. Tacos don't get more metal than evil cooks. The pop-up business with the devilish mascot is famous for one-of-a-kind concoctions like the Satan, a taco version of a bacon cheeseburger, the bruja, a flan taco, and the black vegan trompo. Since 2018, they've been slinging tacos, burritos mulitas, tortas, and tater tots at various spots around Southern California, where they found a loyal fandom and culinary acclaim. We talked to Evil Cooks co-founders Elvia Huerta and Alex Garcia for this week's In the Weeds.
4: Hello, uh, my name is Elvia Huerta and I am part owner and part cocinera for Evil Cooks.
2: Hi, I'm Alex Garcia, I'm the cook at Evil Cooks, I grew up in Mexico in a small town called Querétaro. I grew up really poor, so what we usually eat, it was a lot of eggs, I guess, and a tortilla. I remember my dad making eggs for us, but he used to make something called huevos a la zorra. That's uh, scrambled eggs mixed with beans. And he used to make uh, tortillas from scratch. He's a baker. So he used to make tortillas de harina from scratch. And I think that was one of the most delicious dishes that I ever had because we used to have that for breakfast, uh, lunch, and dinner.
4: The type of food that I ate growing up was uh, very simple. My mother is from Arancho in Mexico, and it's a very poor area. So what she grew up eating was super simple Uh, meat and cheese and that's something that I grew up eating. So that's where my love of food came about. I went to culinary school and from there I jumped around small little restaurants and ended up at a corporate kitchen. Working at UCLA, uh, I was there for 10 years, over 10 years, secure job, uh, very boring life. (laughs)
2: Me and Elvia met through Instagram. Uh, I was cooking in my last job, and uh, I used to put a lot of things about Evo Cooks, and someday, randomly, she started following me, and and from there, we started talking about food, and we ended up here.
4: Starting Evo Cooks gave me a very creative outlet because at UCLA, I had to go by the rules, go by, you know, strict recipes. So starting Evil Cooks was very liberating and freeing for me.
2: I came up with the name Evil Cooks just because of a tattoo in my hands. And I was tired of being a chef. Uh, cooking in the field burned me out. I was too much already in the offices doing paperwork. So I decided to get a tattoo. And everyone told me, get a tattoo that says Evil Chef. And at that point, I was tired of being a chef. So I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to be a cook. I want to be a cook. So from there, like, it was just for fun. I used the name for a T-shirt company. And it happened that a lot of people knew already my cooking. So they started asking for food. And I was like, you know what? We're just going to keep it like that, will cook. So that's how the name came up. So Evo Cooks is a really, really a different pop-up here in LA because we, we involve a lot music with food. When I came from Mexico, I ended up in high school and I wanted it already to be in a band. So I'm, I, I ended up like getting friends together, start playing, and we start playing gigs. So I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be like. I don't know like in big stages playing for people yelling out you know the rock star life but at that moment my mom was struggling so i i knew that i couldn't make any money and my mom needed help with rent so i was like you know what like i'm just gonna go and work and at that point i couldn't get anything else in then in the kitchen industry, in the food industry, as a dishwasher. So I ended up being a dishwasher. And from there, I started falling in love with cooking. And that's when I decided to quit the Rockstar Live and start working. So at one point, I was like, why not to incorporate both things, rock and roll and food? So, I decided to start doing private dinners with the uh, customized menus. And from there, like, we decided to start like popping up in different places in Los Angeles. So, we never had a set menu. It was part of the rebelness of the pop up. Like, we didn't want a set menu because we wanted to be rebel. We wanted to be different. We wanted to challenge ourselves every day to go used to the farmer's market, pick up something and make something out of it. But still, as of now, we have like a little small set menu, but we have a secret menu where we keep our minds like going. We keep all our our ideas coming out and put it in the secret menu. That way people get something fresh every time that they come. I think metal inspires all our food because we want we wanted to make it stream We wanted to make it different we wanted to make it dark and you know like appealing for everyone but at the end of the day something for them to be like wow like what the hell is that that's uh, out of my grandma doesn't do it that way so al pastor al pastor black pastor is uh, i'm going to be honest i didn't came up with it he was a chef in mexico his name is roberto solis he came up with it because he was using something called recado negro. It just happened that my stepdad is from Mérida, Yucatan, where the recado negro is from. It's an ancient uh, Mayan uh, marinade. All what it is, is like burnt chilies, burnt spices, cacao, tortilla, and you make it into a paste. So basically our Poseidon is our octopus trompo al pastor, in recado negro and we wanted to do it because we already had so many different uh, trompos. We had the original one with pork, we had the carne asada, we had the vegan trompo. When you see the octopus on the, in the spit, you'll see all the tentacles around and, and somehow some people get grossed out, but they have to try it to see how delicious it is. We love when people hate it. We We love when people love it because That's what we wanted to do with this pop-up. We wanted to touch the boundaries.
0: That was Elvia Huerta and Alex Garcia of famed pop-up Evil Cooks. You'll find them waiting for extinction every Friday and Saturday night, operating from a driveway in El Sereno and every Sunday at Smorgasburg, LA. Cooking is their business, and business is good. In a minute, we dip our toe into the fairy tale world that is Ballymaloo, where the pudding is set with seaweed, rhubarb grows like a weed, and meringue is always on the menu. Stay close. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. I love Ireland. As a native Angelina, there's something about the cool summers, the near constant drizzling skies that seems, well, exotic. For years, I have dreamed of going to Ballymaloe in County Cork. The country estate owned by the Allen family is part inn, part restaurant, and part cooking school. When friends return, I hear about the gardens overflowing with rhubarb, of brown soda bread with salted butter, and of the trolley, a rolling dessert cart that roams through the restaurant delivering wobbly spoonfuls of carrageen pudding. These days, the trolley is the domain of J.R. Ryle, the chef and author behind Ballymaloe desserts.
5: Hi, J.R. Hi, Evan. Uh, lovely to be here. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast.
0: Oh, we're so happy to have you. Um, we're recording this the week before Saint Patty's Day, and I know how Americans celebrate the holiday, but I'm curious: what do festivities look like in Ireland?
5: Here it tends to be quite a relaxed affair, actually. It's very much a family holiday. So growing up for me, St. Patrick's Day at Home would have involved us getting ready in the morning to go to the local town and we'd walk in the parade. Um, My primary school would often organize us all to dress up some way and we'd be marched down the town as a group and our parents would take pictures and be very proud of all of us making it to the end. And Then we'd go home and have usually what we'd consider a very traditional Irish meal. So for me, it was always um, bacon and cabbage and potatoes that my mother would cook. And you'll find that throughout the country. Um, But in the bigger cities, there'll be large parades and people really go to town on it. So everyone gets involved. It's a very convivial, colourful affair. And uh, then it usually involves a couple of drinks afterwards as well, depending on what age you are. So depending which bit of the country you're in, the, it can be relaxed or a little bit more revved up.
0: <laughs> is, the, is there a dessert that's particularly associated with the holiday?
5: I think a lot of households would probably have um, maybe an Irish apple cake or an apple tart or pie as you might know it. In Ireland, when I say apple cake, usually they would be baked on a plate and traditionally in a cast iron pot in a a turf fire. Of course, now we bake them in ovens. So we'd usually have had either an an apple cake or tart or maybe rhubarb as well, if we were lucky enough to have the first stems from the garden.
0: Mm, Yum. Ireland has such a rich history of using seaweeds of all sorts, especially carrageen. I think most people see that word on ingredient labels and have no idea what it is. Tell us about it. How is it used in cooking and in desserts in particular?
5: It fascinates a lot of people to learn what you just said, actually, that there's a great tradition in Ireland that goes back centuries of using seaweeds, but in particular, carrageen, as we would call it. Now, the name, just to explain what it means, carrig is the Irish word for rock, and carrageen means little rock. So even the name itself is lovely. So carrageen moss means little rock moss when you translate it from the Irish language. So it's a native seaweed. It's about the size of a closed fist, and it grows in the little rock pools all around our coastline. And the tradition around the part of the country where I live, is that during a spring tide, when the moon pulls the tide out further than normal, usually during the first two weeks of July, uh, you'd pick the carrageen from just below the tide line and lay it out on the nearby cliffs. The sun would dry it and the rain would wash it in a time-honored way. And then the dried seaweed could be brought indoors and you'd have enough for the year. So the tradition then is that you would simmer the seaweed in milk to set it. So you end up with a soft set seaweed dessert. Now, if you talk to some people, particularly of my mother's generation, they'll have memories of a very overset milk dessert, and they mightn't look at it so fondly. But if you get your hands on a good recipe and you soft set the milk, it's really a wonderful thing.
0: So Mrs. Allen's Kerrigan Moss Pudding, tell us about that.
5: That is one of the signature desserts that we serve in Ballymaloe every day. So I should mention that Our desserts are served from a dessert trolley or a cart that roams the dining room that goes from table to table and people can have a little bit of each dessert on the trolley so there's always five things that change every day but then there's a sixth item that never changes and that's the carrageen moss pudding the seaweed set milk so mrs allen always set great value on traditional irish dishes And when she opened the restaurant, she took great pride in serving these vernacular things, but elevating them. So the idea of having uh, a folk food in a restaurant uh, would have been quite revolutionary in the 1960s in Ireland, I can tell you. Um, But now, of course, there's great appreciation for these foraged foods and, you know, unusual delicacies. So we would like to serve the the seaweed set milk, usually with a little fruit compote, whipped cream, and a sprinkle of dark brown sugar. And it's a wonderful thing because, of course, as well as being delicious, it's a sustenance. You know, it's full of iodine and minerals. It's good for the health. So as well as being a delicious dessert that isn't too sweet, it's also very good for you.
0: Custards of all kinds are the backbone of the kind of sweets cookery that you do. What happens to all the egg whites left after you use all those yolks for custard?
5: Ah, yes, indeed. Uh, Egg whites are a problem for a lot of kitchens, and sometimes you'll see people discarding them. And, you know, I almost leap out of my skin when I see it because I love to make meringues. One of my favourite meringues, and actually quite nice on the Irish theme, would be an Irish coffee meringue gatto. So that would be a great one for St. Patrick's Day. Now, we wouldn't have had it at home growing up because it would have been a little bit fancier than my mother would do. But let me explain it to you. I would I would flavor meringue with coffee, bake it in discs and sandwich it with a whiskey cream and the cream slightly softens the meringue. And it's a really wonderful thing. So play on the Irish coffee, but great fun and a great way of using up the egg whites.
0: I have a love-hate relationship with meringue, having made just way too many weeping pie tops What are some tips you can give us to create a stable meringue that won't weep?
5: Ah, so definitely start off by making sure all of the equipment is spotlessly clean. And then you have the best chance of getting the stiffest meringue when it whips. And a stiffer meringue will always bake into a better finished product. So that would be number one. Uh, Number two I wouldn't bake anything else in the oven with the meringue because meringue will deteriorate in moisture. So say if you were baking a cake or a pie and you decided to slip some meringues into the oven at the same time, wouldn't be such a good idea because all of that steam will interfere with the meringue. So usually I would bake meringue at a low temperature if I wanted to have a nice crisp meringue the whole way through, and I'd have nothing else in the oven. And, you know, be patient with it, let it bake fully through, then you should have a good result.
0: The way that you pipe meringue over your lemon meringue pie is so gorgeous and different. Can you describe it and how you do it?
5: Oh, sure, yeah. Well, uh, well, growing up, uh, my mother used to make wonderful lemon meringue pies and she'd always swirl the top with a spatula. But um, uh, about 10 years ago, I got a really fun piping nozzle. It's a circular tip that you put in the bottom of the piping bag and it's a little V-notch taken out of it, uh, often used for uh, Gatto Santonori, for anyone who's familiar with that lovely French pastry. But um, you can actually use it to get lots of different shapes with meringue. So I use that nozzle and pipe circles on top of the meringue, and you end up with a really striking pattern. And it turns something that, you know, would normally be a very uh, home-style looking dish into something um, that definitely has a bit of a wow factor to it.
0: So you've mentioned the Irish coffee meringue gâteau, and we've talked about lemon meringue pie, but um, but you have quite a range of other, other desserts using meringue. Can you sort of just give us an idea of that range?
5: Sometimes I'll just spoon meringue freely into blobs, and they can be wonderful to serve alongside fresh fruit and compots, or even with custard and ice cream. Then sometimes you might decide to push the boat out a little, in which case uh, I would make something like a baked Alaska, where you would cover an ice cream dome with meringue. And I love to uh, really go to town on the patterns with that and have it nice and peaky. And then you bake it in the oven. So you end up with a, or you bake it in a very hot oven. So you have a frozen ice cream center, but a lovely, crisp, warm meringue exterior. And then of course, is the queen of the meringue desserts. Which is the Gatto marjolaine, and that's where you fold lots of ground nuts into the meringue and bake it in thin sheets and layer it with buttercreams and ganache, so that would be very much a special dinner time one, but there's loads of directions you can go with meringue, you know, from the simplest blob to something that's really a show stopping dish
0: so it is spring, well, maybe it's spring it's it's going to be spring.
5: <laughs> let's <laughs> almost let's there. T-
0: Almost there. Let's yeah. talk about rhubarb. I'm I'm really looking forward to when it finally comes to our markets here. And I understand that rhubarb is one of the many plants grown at Ballymaloo.
5: Yes, it is. And it's the first thing we harvest every year from the walled garden. Uh, so I should mention there's a century-old walled garden adjacent to the house where the restaurant is in Ballymaloo. And uh, so as soon as we get to St. Patrick's Day, we'll start picking the very first stems of rhubarb. And it's really very exciting uh, because it's the first fresh produce of the year. And the variety that we have here, we actually don't know what it's called, but the stock came from a farm on the edge of Cork City, the nearest city to Ballymaloo, uh, from a farm that Myrtle Allen's family had in the 1940s. So it's been in her family for over 100 years. It has a wonderful deep red color, but also a fantastic flavor. And it's kind of an eye-opener. When you have a flavorful rhubarb and it's sweetened enough when it's cooked, it's so good and can almost rival anything else.
0: So what are some of the dishes you make with
5: it? Oh, um, one of the very first things I always love to do is just to poach the rhubarb simply in syrup because that's one of the very best ways to taste it. And then that can accompany so many other desserts it could go with the carrageen moss pudding, which we described earlier. It could go on the side of a creme brulee or creme caramel, it with an almond praline ice cream or have it beside a praline cake. But also, I must say, one of my favorite rhubarb recipes is the rhubarb custard tart. Because uh, growing up, rhubarb and custard was a big thing in our household. But uh, the tart sort of elevates it a little where you have a lovely, crisp, buttery, short crust base, and then you fill it with Uh, custard and the pieces of rhubarb and bake it. And it's just tender. And it's a really wonderful way to enjoy the fresh rhubarb.
0: So pie, you may not know this, but we host a huge pie contest every year with hundreds of entries. (laughs) So fantastic. Yes, we have a particular fondness for pie. What do you consider a pie?
5: Ah, Well, Around Maloo, I think what uh, most of my American friends might call a pie, we would call a tart. We would vary the filling throughout the year. And I love to make, uh, well, I suppose to answer the question, what, what would I call a pie? It's when I would have pastry beneath and on top of the fruit. So if I was making a pie, I would line a pie dish or a plate, a heatproof plate with shortcrust pastry, put a mound of fruit on top. It could be anything from plums to apricots to apple and blackberries to gooseberries. Uh, put plenty of sugar on it and then cover the top of that with some sort of flaky pastry. It could be puff pastry or even a, a pastry that might be new to people that's in the book that we call cream pastry that I think might actually have been invented in Malu, because we, we can't really trace its origin. And then bake it in the oven. So you have a lovely crisp golden top and a nice biscuity base and a lovely juicy fruit filling. Tell us about that dough, the cream dough. Yes. To make it, you rub cold salted butter into flour, but equal weights. So this is a lot of butter in a pastry. So if you have a pound of flour, you'd use a pound of butter. So, you know, this tips the balance in the direction of uh, something really good already. And then you add, if you use that proportion, you'd add a pint of cream. And it looks like so much liquid going into the mixer, but suddenly it comes together to quite a sticky dough and you do wonder for a moment oh golly am I ever going to be able to roll this out but we chill it overnight and miraculously it firms up and then we roll it from the fridge and it's a really wonderful versatile dough uh, because well number one you can make it uh, in a machine so anyone who feels like they have warm hands or they're you know they don't have the touch for pastry very easy to make and then you just roll it straight from the fridge and I would use it for making little tartlets where I would cut circles of the pastry, line um, some moulds with it, some little metal moulds, and put a fan of apple or some gooseberries or sliced rhubarb or whatever fruit I had on hand uh, into it, sprinkle sugar on top and bake it. So you literally end up with five ingredients in the little tartlet. And when they bake, the pastry goes crisp, it puffs up a little bit, uh, but it's also slightly tender. So it's just a joy to eat. But you could also use that pastry to cover a pie or a tart, as I would call it. And uh, it's really great to have up your sleeve. Um, And it's also an egg-free pastry for anyone who doesn't want to have anything too eggy. So it's, uh, Mm. it's one of the pastries we always have in stock in the fridge. It's really great.
0: So I think that the very first recipe I make from the book will be the cherry almond galette Um, Ah, Cherries are a lovely one. Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. And cherries are just about to come into season here. Could you describe it for us, please?
5: Yes, of course. And I'm so jealous that your cherry season starts so early. For us, we'll have another couple of months to wait. Uh, But that particular galette is a puff pastry uh, base. So I would cut a circle of puff pastry um, spread some frangipan, like a, an almond cream or an almond mixture on top of the pastry, leaving a border around the edge. And then for the cherries, I would run a knife around the stone, twist the cherries, take the stones out, but trying to keep the best shape and then arrange them on top of the almond mixture and then sprinkle some sugar on and bake it in a hot oven. And in the time it takes to bake, the cherries soften and some of their juices run into the pan and the pastry puffs up around it. And it's a really, really good thing. I actually love to bring that on a picnic. There's a lovely spot uh, on the nearby cliffs where there's bouncy grass that you can sit on. And if you bring one of those galettes over on a sunny evening, you know, it, it's, a good, it's a good day.
0: It's so beautiful. Well, thank you so oh, much, you. JR. This has been such a pleasure.
5: Oh, well, well, it was my pleasure to be on. Thank you very much. And so good to talk to you.
0: That is J. Ryle, the head pastry chef at Ballymaloo House in Cork, Ireland. His book, filled with luscious desserts, is Ballymaloo Desserts. We've got a recipe for his Irish coffee meringue gâteau on our website. That's kcrw.com slash The Market Report's on deck. Stay with us. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. It's that time when we head to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market to find out what's in season this week. Jillian Ferguson is there now with her report.
6: This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I think it says a lot about the abundance of California in the wintertime that it's taken us until March to talk about citrus here on the Market Report This time of year, we are awash in varieties, both big and small. And Kirsten Bliss, pastry chef at the newly opened Lingua Franca in Frogtown, is here with ideas on what to do with our winter bounty. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you here. So there's been so much anticipation leading up to the opening of Lingua Franca, which comes from the team behind the popular wax paper sandwich shops. How do you decide what goes on the opening pastry menu?
7: So, a lot of the menu has been just inspired by Frogtown and the amazing nature and the restaurant that uh, Peter and Lauren have built there. So, I have a walnut tart that's on the menu, and that's really inspired by all the wood finishes that are inside of the restaurant. And the chocolate egret's nest is on there, and that's just an ode to the egret that is our our little mascot of the restaurant yeah because you guys are directly on the LA river yes right there right there (laughs) do you see egrets out the window yeah we do and we have a beautiful like skylight in the roof so you can just see like the birds flying by it's really nice amazing (laughs) amazing all right so let's talk about that chocolate egret's nest what is it so it's a dense chocolate brownie on top of that is a pipe chocolate ganache with chocolate ganache and it kind of looks like a nest it's like a circled around and then we fill the inside with blood oranges and all of that sits on top of a blood orange compote and olive oil jam. Mm. So was this inspired by blood oranges, or did it start with the egret's nest
6: and then it'll change seasonally?
7: Yes, exactly. It's gonna change seasonally. It's gonna stick with that egret's nest, so we're gonna we're gonna rotate the the fruit that's on there. Okay. so where are you getting the uh, blood oranges from? I'm getting them from Murray Farms right now, and they just have a beautiful selection of blood oranges. I, for the longest time, only knew of Moro blood oranges. and I wasn't ever really impressed. but this year when I came by, Murray's. They just had a great, a beautiful bounty of different types of blood oranges that are just so sweet and delicious. What is it about the flavor of blood oranges that inspired you? I would say it was actually more of the color and the brightness of the blood orange that caught my eye initially. And they tend to be a little more tart, which with the balance of the deep dark chocolate on my dessert, it just balances out really nicely. Mm -hmm. And blood oranges are tricky to peel, so I imagine you must be segmenting them? I am using the peels for the compote and I am segmenting them, yes, because the inside pith gets really like tough, it's not fun to eat, so yeah, I definitely segment them and cut around those pieces.
6: I love that you're using the peel, tell us about your compote.
7: So the compote is pretty simple, it's just like peeling off the outer peel of the blood orange, blanching those for like five minutes to get the bitterness out. And then with a knife, just cutting to the inside of the orange, segmenting them, and then getting all as much juice out of the orange as possible. And then um, weighing all that, getting a nice amount of sugar in there, equal parts sugar to blood orange, and just cooking that down. And it makes a really, really nice, flavorful compote.
6: Well, we all are excited about Lingua Franca. It's been a long time coming. It's great to see you here at the market. Thank you so much. (laughs) That was Kirsten Bliss. She's the pastry chef at the brand new Lingua Franca. It is right on the L.A. River in Frogtown. Right now, they're open for dinner Wednesday through Sunday. Jesse Ruiz is the market coordinator for Murray Family Farms up in Bakersfield. They bring the blood oranges down that Kirsten was talking about. And Jesse, you've got a table full of citrus this week. Can you just pick out
8: some of your favorites, starting with those that you can just eat out of hand? One of the best ones for me would be the Tango Mandarins, Easy Peel, the Seedless murkots, I've been told, Sweet Tangy and on the go Mandarin. I love that, great for kids. Yes, my son loves them, I love them. I probably eat them a little bit more than him, but amazing for kids. And tell us about those blood oranges that we were hearing about earlier. The Turaco blood oranges, oh my goodness, it's probably been my most favorite thing the last two months. I probably eat about at least 10 a week. I know I have them every dinner, every morning, so, oh shoot, 14, I guess. A whole lot, and great flavor. They have a hint of acidity, and not quite as vibrant in red, but does have color to it. In addition to the Turacos, you also have two other varieties of blood oranges. What are those? That is correct. So we have another one called a Moro blood orange and a Sanguinelli blood orange. Uh, Great flavors in all of them. Turaco is definitely going to be the sweetest. Next would be our Moro blood orange. The Moros tend to be a way deeper blood orange. That one to me is okay. However, we have a few customers that are dedicated to the Moro blood orange. I find it to be very mild, very low acid, very low in sweetness, beautiful color. So if you ever want to use it for like salads, it holds its structure together very well or even for baking. Um, Our third blood orange we have is a sanguinelli blood orange. And personally, I feel like this one is probably what you would think a blood orange, like a traditional blood orange would taste like. It's a little bit on the acidic side. It's not quite juicy, but it has this beautiful like floral um pattern to it with the red colors in it and it's very like minerally earthy flavor to it really nice yeah and then on the table you also have some of what we might call like the quirkier citrus the
6: buddha's hand the various quads maybe pick out some of the more esoteric varieties and
8: tell us about those Oof, we'll start off with the indio mandarin quads those are really great for marmalades Um, A lot of our restaurants and customers use them for marmalades. However, I've used them a few times, and what I've done is I'll use the zesting and then squeeze the juice in vinaigrettes, do a little oil, uh, vinegar mixture, get some of the juice from those because it's a little acidic, and just zest the whole thing, shake it up, and amazing for salads. That's such a good idea because the zest is actually the sweet part, Mm -hmm. right? That is correct, yeah. Yeah, I love that. What about the Buddha's hand? Oh, Buddha's hand is an amazing fruit of ours. I personally have just used it in water to infuse, but I have had customers bring back many things. They have candied it, uh, marmalades, infused liqueurs, um, even the inside of it's like a very mild lemony carrot flavor. So having that in salads with like fennel and is super good. The inside is all pith, though, right? There's no actual juicy fruit on the inside? That is correct. There's uh, about one in a thousand will have a small amount of juice. Um, whenever there is juice content in it, it is quite bitter. So even though a lot of people get detoured from the pith and like oranges and mandarins, the pith in the Buddha's hand is not bitter at all. It's quite refreshing, actually. Wow.
6: Not to bury the lead here, but as soon as we get even a hint of spring in Southern California, many market regulars start daydreaming about cherries. Your farm in Bakersfield has the first cherries in North America, so we know they're coming soon. Tell us what we can expect.
8: Uh, an amazing cherry year, <laughs> that's for sure. So, we've had so far a great chilling winter. You know, we've had over about 70, 80 hours of chilling. With that, they're gonna do great. The storms that have passed, I know a lot of people have been asking about the storms. It hasn't damaged any of the cherry trees. Um, We got a little bit more hit on the larger citrus falling off. Cherries are doing amazing and they actually this last week or two started blooming. So we're looking forward to seeing cherries next month. We're shooting for about April 15th. However, we won't have an exact date until the cherries start getting a little pink shoulder on them. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you. That was Jessie Ruiz. She's the market coordinator for
6: Murray Family Farms. Right now, during citrus season, you can find them at the Wednesday Santa Monica and the Sunday Mar Vista Farmers Market. And come cherry season, they will be at 35 markets with all those gorgeous cherries. We can look forward to that in mid-April. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you
0: missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman, and here is this week's Pi PSA. If you want to enter your Pi and haven't gotten around to it yet, do not procrastinate. Entries are filling up very quickly, and we'll have to cap it if we're not going to exceed capacity. So don't miss your chance. Go to kcrw.com slash pi to enter in one of nine categories and start planning. Your family, your colleagues, and your neighbors will love eating your practice pies. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food.